Hello, welcome to another episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Kelly. And I'm Bailey. And once again, we're very excited to have a guest with us today. Um, As we mentioned on our last episode, we've been meeting some amazing people in the fan community of The Wire, Uh, a lot of people on social media interacting and sharing fascinating thoughts about the show. And so we're really excited to welcome Angel Graham here today uh, as a guest on Rewired Podcast. We met Angel through Twitter, uh, just uh, seeing some of the really interesting posts that she was sharing and wanting to hear more about that. So Angel, thank you for being here. We're really glad that you're joining us. Um, Thank you for having me. Tell everyone sort of who you are and uh, just a little introduction to yourself. Okay, well, my name is Angel. I am a, let's see, how would I even start? I am a customer service representative by day. That is my job. Um, And I am a a recent graduate. Uh, I have a master's degree in forensic medicine. and a bachelor's degree in environmental science. Um, so I'm a uh, aspiring scientist in the, in, in the making. And how did you first come to be a viewer of The Wire? When did you watch it? Why did you become uh, a big fan? And kind of what keeps you coming back? Okay, that's a good question. Um, you know, I first learned about The Wire through, you know, family and friends they would always talk about it and I I can't say I was old enough when it first premiered I know it uh, you know at the think it came out what was it 2001 ish or 2001-ish so I was like you know in middle school lower school so I was way too young to kind of uh watch the show um, but I used to hear about, my mother used to say, Stringer Bell, Stringer Bell. And I'm like, who is this Stringer Bell? The Wire, The Wire, The Wire. And I'm like, okay, 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 okay. And then um, as I got older, when I went to college, I like started watching it because I just kept hearing about it repeatedly over and over again. And I was like, okay, wow. Um, so I, th- I started watching it like when I was in college and I kind of didn't really Initially, I was watching it because of who was in it, the, so all the, like, celebrities, you know, Stringer Bell was Idris Elba, you know, you had Wendell Pierce, you, you had all, you had this plethora of great actors on it, so I wasn't really watching it initially from a perspective of, like, okay, this is a crime show. I was so caught up in, like, who was in it and in the names and things like that, and then as of recently, after I got my master's degree, um, I went back and I revisited it, um, and I just started with anything I watch, anything um, crime related, forensic fo- related. I cannot watch it without looking at it from a forensic uh, medicine perspective. And I was like, well, I've already seen a lot of David Simon shows already, kind of binge watch them. Um, so I was like, let me just—I I need to finish the wire. I need to finish the wire because I started at season. Uh, the Boys of Summer. That's where I, I started. Oh. Because, you know, with with Mac, Julito, all those big names, I was watching it just to watch it. So that's where I kind of started at. And then I went back and I was like, okay, let me start from season one and work my way. And then I was like, oh, okay. It all makes sense now. Everything. Because if you start in the middle of the show, it's not going to make, to me, it's not going to make sense. Like, the it, it, everybody's connected. Like I've said on Twitter, everybody's connected. So if you watch in the middle and you, and that's kind of all you've seen, it's not really going to click. So I had to go back and watch it. And ever since then, I, I use Twitter as my grounds of whatever I'm watching. I'm, I'm tweeting about it. I'm like, I, I have to tweet about this. Like I'm late to the game, but this, this wire is like so dope and so interesting that I just, yeah, I, I have a new eye now. Watching I, I think it would be really challenging to come into the show at season four. Were you able to, like, enjoy it without the backstory of the previous three seasons? I, I, I was able to enjoy it, and I think I know why I was able to enjoy that point, that season, because it was kids, you know? It was kids 
that, you, you know, we're young, you know. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay, this is good. This is great. All right. So I was able to enjoy that. But when I went back to season one and worked my way all the way through the series, I really enjoyed it. Because I was like, okay, well, how is um, Randy connected to Cheese Wagstaff? Well, they're like related in some way, and you know, related to Proposition Joe in some way. I was like, ah, now it makes sense. Now it's connected. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Oh, go, Bailey. Sorry. Um, I was just going to jump in and say I think it's really interesting that you watched it that way because um, when you read the All the Pieces Matter book, uh, there's some conversation about how there's almost like each season is almost standalone because they never knew if they were going to get renewed. And so I think, yeah, like season four definitely has ties to the previous three seasons, but they're almost independent of each other too. Like I could see how you could watch that one season and be like, okay, like, this is a good show, but not necessarily right. know the backstory. Right. I fully understand that. Wow. All of these pieces. And like the thing with the wire is that I love, it's like, you know, and I've heard people, you know, say this and I've heard cast members talk about this, that, you know, in the very beginning, you like, again, everything is all connected, but especially with season four, you know, dealing with the public school system and dealing with, um, kids that are not necessarily the cookie cutter image of what a student should be because unfortunately they are a product of their environment and they the only way they only know one way so if you grow up one way and that's all you see if all you know is a five block radius you're not going to know anything else because of the exposure you weren't exposed so that's why it's like yeah, it just all connects. But yeah, I know I was definitely watching season four, especially because um, I have relatives that are in education. So <laughs> I remember watching season four in particular and looking at um, Lita McCollum's character in particular. <laughs> and my mother is in special education where she taught for many years. And so I was like, well, mom, he has op optional defiance disorder. Like, <laughs> Those are the kids that, like, I went to school with, you know, that were, like, you know, bad-behaved kids and, and, and didn't, just wanted love and attention and didn't know how to, you know, show it. So they were just reacting to the environment in which they grew up in, and, it, and it's not necessarily their fault, it's just their environment. Well, and that context, so your connections to education plus your uh, advanced degree in forensic medicine, I'm sure, really um, colors your perception or your interpretation of the show. Um, and I, I know we're we're going to talk about Women in the Wire, but since you mentioned your education, <laughs> what changed for you after studying forensic medicine? Did it give you um, a, a different reaction when you watched it? It gave me a different reaction action and watching it and understanding both sides of the coin when it comes to the interaction between law enforcement, <laughs> uh, politicians, and, you know, individuals that are, that are selling narcotics and, and using narcotics. And I kind of developed, like, I understand you know, why law enforcement was the way they were. But unfortunately, there was, I think, and I'm trying, I'm not really good with remembering exact scenes, but uh, I think it was, oh my gosh, Bunny Colvin, exactly, when he decided <laughs> to make drugs in a sense, okay, you could sell drugs in a restricted area. And it's just like, that that wasn't the smartest idea that you know that wasn't you know that and that's why I think you know he got in trouble for you know what he did but I mean I I I have a, a I guess a better understanding of law enforcement and I have a better understanding of um you know people that are in those characters that were in the game that I realized that in this game of life, you know, nobody ever wins the game. It's 
you know, it's a, it's a game of chess. Nobody's ever going to, you know, win, you know, and nobody ever did win in the series, really. Um, you know, they, they at least left, you know, bruised and scuffed up and everything. So it, um, it, it, it made me more watchful. It made me definitely more vigilant, um, in my own community and in, in my own environment too. But it's like I, my heart, you know, my heart went out to <laughs> a lot of the characters um, in the wire that, you know, I, 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 uh, you know, Omar. That was so tragic. That was so, 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 so tragic. Like now he just died. But I was like, good. Now Keenard can go to baby booking because that's what he deserved. Like he was a kid, but you know, it's just so. Yeah, it didn't. Yeah, it definitely changed my perspective. Yeah, and it's like that quote, uh, nobody wins, one side just loses more slowly. Yes. Or Kitty, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, and I think one thing, Bailey and I have talked about this in The Wire, how it's very different from shows like CSI. Uh, Bailey hates CSI. Um, Well, you know, I'm sorry to cut you off, but the thing with CSI, and that's what they taught us, like, in day one, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, now I think when I when I first started my graduate program, a lot of us, you know, came in because we were affected by the CSI effect. You know, we were affected by, like, oh, okay, they're doing this on CSI, so I want to go out and be, you know, a crime scene investigator. Oh, I want to go out and be, you know, a medical examiner. And CSI is a good show, no shade to CSI. However, it's, to me, in my opinion, it's just not as realistic. Like, you're not going to solve a crime in, like, 30 minutes to an hour, however long the episodes were on CSI. So, you know, a lot of us, like, people that are in the field of criminal justice and forensics, sometimes, you know, we get blinded by the CSI effect. <laughs> and, you know, I was taught early on in my program, a study that, you know, we have to stick to the facts. We have to stick to the evidence that's presented. You know what I mean? And not to go down uh, the rabbit hole as much as you want to, because, you know, you, you get facts and you get into, you know, that's when the criminology comes in, like, oh, why did they do it? But like, you're you know, with forensic medicine in particular, you know, I did a lot of uh, coursework in pathology and a lot of like, you know, crime scene investigation and really dealing with how the person died and ultimately, or how the person not necessarily died, but necessarily got injured. Like, let's say you had an um, instance with the person being abused and you have to analyze, I don't know, the bruises, the, excuse me, the uh, assault or or what have you so it it ultimately boils down to bringing closure to that family or trying to do the best you can best with what you have and bringing closure to the family and using the evidence to come to a conclusion of you know based on uh within reasonable medical certainty based on the evidence and based on the facts because the person will tell you the decedent or the injured will you know basically tell you this is what happened to me you know if they can't speak for themselves that's you know when the autopsy comes in and certain things that you have to do to backtrack but you have to kind of just stick to the facts and here this is what it is as much as you want to go down the rabbit hole you gotta just stick to the facts yeah well i think um season five a lot of people um kind of don't like season five because of the false serial killer narrative and maybe CSI in a way conditioned people to think that the forensics would save the day in some, in some sense, or that, you know, McNulty wouldn't be able to get away with. Oh, no, 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 no. When I saw that I was, I was, I was seething. I said, well, and I'm saying to myself, why would he do that? But see, McNulty is a type of individual, and I I loved him and I hated him. I loved him when he was clean and sober and he was thinking somewhat rationally, but when he got back on that bandwagon, it was just like, okay, you screwed up again. But it just was like, why would you even do that? And it's so, that part, and I mean, that's a reality. There are some unethics. There's some people that are unethical like that and will do anything to just... 
I don't know, get the acknowledgement. But I just, I when I saw that, I was seething. I was seething, I was seething, I was seething. But that, in some cases, in forensics, you know, that's a reality that, you know, an ethics, you know, ethics come into play. But he should have definitely, from a forensic perspective, I mean, I'm not in the field yet, but in my opinion, he should have been fired immediately. But. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, Bailey, what do you make of the, uh, I guess, the element of um, some corrupt folks being players in the criminal justice system? I know that uh, that's just the reality in, in so many places and sort of pervasively, especially um, in uh, in many different, like, urban settings. But Bailey, like you having studied criminology as well, did that affect your interpretation of the show? Um, I mean, I think in some ways, yeah, like I just have always kind of taken it for granted that there are corrupt members in every police force. I think what was interesting about McNulty being corrupt like that, I mean, I agree, Angel, like when I was watching and Kel, to your point too, like even though I didn't like CSI, um, I did still kind of believe in the science of it. And I did think like, how could this possibly be happening? And maybe, maybe the point was to make it clear actually how unrealistic some of these like scenarios, like Angel, you were saying of the CSI effect, like lab work actually takes like months and months and months. I mean, my day job is working with um, survivors of sexual violence and, just alone, the people that go to get the evidence kits done at the hospital after being assaulted, we know that it can take like months and months and months for that to be processed. So, you know, it, it, I guess maybe David Simon was trying to make a point that the lab work isn't always immediate. Um, but it was just so frustrating to me because it just seemed outlandish for a show that had been very realistic up until that point. But right. maybe there are people like McNulty in every, you know, maybe it was realistic. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, um, we'll park that for the time being because, uh, Angel, you had brought up a topic on Twitter that Bailey and I really wanted to dig into further, which is the role of women in the wire and how women in many ways are sort of, uh, under discussed while at the same time being major drivers of, of change in in the plot and in the uh, development um so angel tell us a little bit about what kind of sparked that in your mind well you know i was thinking um it, it just i was looking at like for example um kima Griggs. like she was like one of my favorite like detectives and I, I just I don't know I just thought about um I I thought about like I just didn't see a lot of discussion about the the women and and you know how they were really holding it down and I you know going back to Detective Griggs I you know just really saw how she was holding it down and we don't you know it's not talked about a lot it's not talked about a lot how she was kind of the backbone. <laughs> she kind of held the men up as they were, you know, doing their own thing. Yeah, um, and yeah. I, I recently was going back and oh, well, not recently. I'm constantly rewatching The Wire, and mm-hmm. um, we see Kima sort of right off the hop as this uh, female police officer, a detective. And I was trying to think: is there any other female? police member shown I don't think that there is actually because even in like the briefing sessions of like when um you know the the sergeants are handing out the the um, whatever they are you know the assignments for the day and what needs to be done and juke the stats and all of that I'm not sure that we ever see another female no I don't, I don't think we do either, now that I think about it, no. I mean, the only, I think, and I don't know, and I can't remember how many people that was like, but um, she became the judge at the end, 
or became, you know... Perlman. Ronnie Perlman. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Um, she was kind of like the team of, but not really, but as far as law enforcement, no. I'm trying to remember. We have, we have Beatty, Beatrice Russell, the port cop, but she's port cop, like port authority. She's not part of the Baltimore police. And I was, uh, when I was going back, I was really kind of struck by... Even in, like, the background, we don't see another female Baltimore Police Department. No. No. I think it's interesting, too, because um, they do a fair bit of work character development-wise in making it clear that BD is not a quote-unquote real cop. Like, they, 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 like, not uh dismiss her experience entirely but like she's not considered real police and they even say you know she wasn't shit when they started but now she's got me <laughs> right but i mean she was critical in what was it um the um you know the girls in the can the 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 13 bodies in the shipping container Yes, he was very critical in that point, and I really feel like they, after that, you know, it got into her relationship with McNulty, and it kind of like took it out, but she was very important, I think, the critical piece in that component. I mean, she brought the head honcho in, and I was like, listen, you got to do what you got to do. So, I, I, you know, other than Kima and her, yeah, you kind of don't really... Um, see another woman in law enforcement and then on the other side of it you see a lot of women that are in the game or you know addicts or you know what have you but not in law enforcement and it just kind of demonstrates I think the uh, disproportion and the unbalance. And I think especially in a show that is so um, attentive to small details the way the wire is like we see so much attention to detail the fact that there's not even, like, an extra or, like, a background scene of, uh, like, a woman in the police force right. is, I don't know if, if that is kind of um, an indictment, in a sense, of the disproportionate male representation in, in law enforcement. Yeah. And also because yeah. Kima kind of... Right in season one, episode one, Kima is the one who is correcting the mistakes of Herc and Carver and the oh, most yeah. guilt. Oh, yeah. Which I love. Which I love. Just like because Herc and Carter Carver, I'm sorry, they they were like the beavers and butthead. I love them, but they were like the beavers and butthead, um, just to compare. Like just kind of like silly, kinda of didn't I don't think at first took their roles Seriously, I mean, they got their jobs done, but they were, you know, they, I don't think they were as serious as they really could have been. And like you said, she definitely was the clean, she was the the fixer, the cleaner upper. Um, And it wasn't until as seasons progressed, she really, I think, got into her niche as to what she uh, definitely wanted to be and like where she stood. And it was like, have you ever noticed, like, I, I had to think about it, like, her character and McNulty, they're somewhat similar in the fact of like, you know, with the infidelity and the whole, they were kind of, I think for a minute, Kima was going kind of down the McNulty path, but then she got herself together and was like, you know what, realized that, you know, I have a lot at stake, you know, and it was heartwarming to see that, you know, she finally got her son and, you know, they're bonding and she didn't deserve him like I thought she would. And it was just really heartwarming to see her. In a, in a position, in a higher position, kind of position. And even, um, so I was rewatching season one, episode one, uh, last week, and the first sort of police operation that is shown in the entire series is Kima in the car with her informant, who is also female, and Kima saying, okay, tell me what I'm seeing, girl. And so the the police operations are introduced through an entirely female lens. Mm, yes, yes. Yes, definitely, definitely it was. But, you know, it just, yeah, Kima is, like, my favorite, like, of the law enforcement uh, side of the wire as far as female roles. Um, 
school bag doesn't not that good. So she, she takes no stuff. She takes no stuff. And she's serious about what she does. And, you know, she's there to clean up the mess. <laughs> there to clean up the mess for everybody that makes it. Bailey, what do you think, Akima? Yeah, I mean, I think Kima is a great character, and and you're right, Angel. Like, she really is kind of the one that's holding it down through the whole show. I I think it's an interesting. You're right, Kel, that it's kind of this female lens that kicks off the um, the show. But I think it's interesting that it's kind of like in under this kind of vindictive woman thing. Like, it's the informant is meant to get back at her man who's cheating or whatever. Right. And I also think what's interesting about Kima is she's, of course, the one that does the right thing finally in the end. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a, no, that's a good catch. I didn't even think about that. But she's the one who kind of pulls the plug on the whole uh, fake serial killer narrative, right? Right. Because I think she knew McNulty. I don't know. She, I think, again, I think they were more like kindred spirits. I don't know. It's especially like, you know, they both, again, were dealing with the infidelity. They didn't know where they wanted to be. And she kind of like, you know, like you said, pulled the plug on the whole fake serial killer unethical thing that McNulty did. So, you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm glad that she, you know, finally got her stuff together and said, you know what? Let me do the right thing. And let me let me be a sense of hope a little bit on this side of law enforcement. Let me not fall victim to my own vices. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because she, you're right, there's these moments where she's very much like McNulty. And then, you know, there's the time that um, Lester kind of lectures her about how Daniels raised her from a pup and, you know, why is she going down this road with McNulty doing the Stringer investigation behind Daniel's back when, you know, the, and I guess Lester's kind of like that voice on her shoulder, the, the angel on her shoulder telling her to do Mm -hmm. the right thing. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Lester was cool too. I like his little miniature, (laughs) his miniature, uh, little things that he would make. (laughs) Like, I'm like, have the time in the show. He's making miniatures. Like, was he really working? But he was, but yeah. But I got Well, and so, uh, that kind of makes me think about how, I guess if we're talking about in law enforcement, these three major female players, Kima, B.D. Russell, and Ronnie Perlman, we actually see very little interaction among the three of them. Um, And we don't see too much sort of, um, I guess, collaboration among the female representatives of Port Authority, uh, the state's attorney's office, and the Baltimore PD. Right. Yeah, you definitely don't see interaction. And and it kind of just shows you that, you know, I think going back to McNulty again, he was the type of individual that is like, okay, I can solve this on my own. I don't need anybody's help. But, you know, in reality, it's all a collaborative effort. So it would have been nice to kind of see those three individuals kind of come together and collaborate because it's like in law enforcement it's like it's it's not it's no i in team it's not just one person doing all of the it, it should not be just one person doing all of the you know work and that's how things get lost you know what i mean that's how critical information when it comes to sexual assault you know different cases gets lost in the mud that's why you have what i think you have a lot of cold cases because somebody says, well, I, you know, I'm going to do this on my own. And it's like, you, you, it's, that's, that's unrealistic. You, you know, that brings up a really good point, Angel, about um, the sort of do this on your own. Because it makes me think that we have people like McNulty who are adamant, I am going to do this on my own. I want to do this on my own. Whereas the the female operators are kind of forced to do this on their own. Like, remember when there's the whole, I guess it's like a um, conference room with all the different legal bodies, like Port Authority, Coast Guard, State Troopers, Baltimore PD, etc. And they all kind of dump the girls in the can on Beatty. And she's forced to kind of work alone. 
And then we see the same thing with Kima when there's um, the homicide, I guess it's towards the start of season five, when they put her out as like the face of, you're going to run this um, as like a brand new homicide detective. And they kind of force her to be a solo operator. And so I see sort of a difference there between like a masculine choosing to be a lone wolf versus female maybe being forced to be a lone wolf. Right. And it and it shouldn't be. And I think it goes to the narrative, the unfortunate, the unfortunate narrative that, you know, women are strong, you know, especially women of color. Like, you know, we're strong women. And it's just like, you know, not all the time. You know, we have our vulnerable moments. We have our weak moments. So, you know, I think I think as far as gender roles, you know, the men assume that oh the women could get it done. They don't they don't need any help. They don't need any comfort. They don't need any, you know, somebody say it's gonna be okay. It's all right. Like you can let it out, let it go. And you know, it it especially when Kima got shot when she was undercover and she got shot. And <laughs> like I was so scared. I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like is she gonna make it? Is she gonna be okay? Like I got shook. Like I in a, in a moment I felt like I was in law enforcement. I'm like Oh no, not Kima. Kima, don't die. Please, please, please. I was so like in it. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm happy that, you know, when it did happen, they kind of rushed to her aid. McNulty really kind of didn't. He, he felt, you know, bad. He felt responsible. But, you know, I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. So I, yeah. Um, I think one of the interesting. But yeah, that that moment with McNulty and Kima is like a very tender moment. That's one of those moments that really humanizes McNulty. I think like, yeah. even though we see that he's an asshole, we're, like there's a moment <laughs> there where we're like, okay, like, but he's also kind in a way. Um, he has feelings. He has emotions. He, yeah. He's vulnerable. And, you know, I think going back to him, you know, with him, again, he... Liquid courage is his way of coping, I think, as being in law enforcement that, you know, he's dealing with. The, I'm not I'm not saying I'm not condoning, you know, his alcoholism, because I, I honestly think that he, you know, had some alcoholic uh, problems. But, um, you know, I, I think that. The reason why he did what he did, because it was inebriated half the time. you know, and then sometimes I think, well, OK, well, maybe that's just who he is as an individual. So I kind of had moments where I was like, okay, he's really drunk, so he's going to make some stupid decisions. Or, you know, is he really an ass? Like, you know, is he really this this individual? And sometimes it's kind of, you know, um, it's the lines are blurred. Like, you can't really tell. Drunk or personality. Yeah, it's true. And I was also just thinking when we were talking about Kima and the interaction that um, – the people had was or the the interaction between the women there is a moment between uh Kima and Beatty where Kima I think is still kind of wrestling with who she wants to be and and she does ask Beatty like how do you do this with kids how do you do this with a family how do you cope and Beatty basically says well it's I mean it's fine temporarily but this is not a way and I think in that moment Mm-hmm. Ema sees she's gonna kind of have to pick one life or the other. Bailey, that's what? a great scene because now that reminds me in that same scene. So when Kima is asking Beatty, you know, how do you balance this with a family? Uh, Kima then is kind of able to give advice to Beatty, like use the mirrors, uh, use your surroundings to keep your cover, and so they're sort of trading wisdom there. But to your point, Bailey, they're trading only the sort of piece of of what they know which almost kind of uh further enforces this idea that like women have to pick in a way like do you want your expertise in your career or do you want uh to be very much family oriented right right most definitely and I think also to you know, when Kima's partner was kind of really um, pushing her to, what was it, go to become a lawyer or go into law, I believe. 
Um, and yeah, yeah, right. to use the bar, yeah, or to pass the bar and all that. Right, to pass the bar to become a lawyer, right? And you know, Kimu, I think without saying it, you can see it in her body language and just how the conversation kind of just like I don't really want to talk about this or I don't really want to do this. So I think I don't know. I think in the show, like the women were like, you know like you said, uh, we're kind of forced to pick like, okay, either you want to do this or do this. Um, And so I think also too, like going back to the gender roles, like the the women kind of had to, I think, prove more than the men, like the men, like, okay, you're a man, you know, you're in law enforcement. So it's, they weren't as, they weren't questioned as much as the women were, or even if there was a (laughs) conversation of question as to what they were doing. But I just felt like, you know, the women, um, just had to prove herself more or they had to go the extra mile to show that I can, you know, I'm a law enforcement and I'm the same as you, even though I'm a woman. It's just like, I, I, I have the same job, you know what I mean? So it, I feel like they had to just do a little bit more because they were dealing with a triple whammy in some cases. Some were, you know, women, law enforcement, you know, the gender role, the gender identity type of thing going on. So, it, you know, they, they had a lot more to deal with, I think, than the men did. Um, just the multifaceted <laughs> issues in their lives, you know, that they had to deal with, especially Keenan. Well, and we also see a little bit of it with Ronnie when she needs to get a warrant signed by Judge Phelan. <laughs> and yes. she... Not to say that she kind of, like, exploits her femininity. I don't think she does, really. But she knows that her femininity is um, an asset in winning over or getting this warrant pushed through faster. And because that's kind of the reality of the circumstance, and that's the same scene where you can see McNulty kind of, like, getting pissed off a little bit. Right, right. Right, most definitely. And it's just like, yeah, she definitely had to kind of push her femininity more. And it's like in the scenes where, like, Kima going back to Kima, it was one scene, I think, where she went into the corner store, um, at the little bodega corner store, and the guy was kind of hitting on her. And it's like, okay, boy, please, I, I got a job to do. Like, really, you're trying to hit on me, and I got, I got a job to do. So it just like, you know. Well, and same with Beatty. Before the season two detail, all of them meet Beatty. I think one of them, I forget who, says like, well, is she pretty at least? Or something along those lines. Um, And then, yeah, yeah, Judge Phelan says like about Ronnie, I think in season one, like, I'd love to stick a fuck into her or something. Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's Ronnie. But um, it's Bunk. That says, is she pretty at least about Beatty, I think. Wow. Yeah. And then there's, um, oh, it made me think of one other time uh, that Beatty gets hit. No, I can't remember what it was. Never mind. Bailey, is it with Herc? Remember Herc is like very sort of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's with Herc. Okay. Tell us about that, Bailey. Well, Herc, it's interesting because I think. Herg is maybe, well, maybe not, but he's quite outwardly misogynistic and, and sexually harassed. Like, we see that a few times. But, yeah, he asks BD to go for a, a coffee, and then she just holds up her coffee mug. Because I think, like a lot of women in law enforcement, she's used to being hit on, which is one of the things, actually, Kima talks about, too, why she's out about being a lesbian, because she says otherwise she'd get hounded 24-7. Um but, uh, yeah, so BD just holds up her coffee and walks away. And then Carver's like, oh, you know, making fun of him or whatever. And he's like, well, I would have told her I was going to make soup with her panties. But I thought that was too wow. outward. You I know, don't know then, like, again because I'm like, wow. Yeah. And then there's also when Herc is studying for the <laughs> sergeant's exam, the staff sergeant's exam. And he's talking about uh, what he'd do in the case of the sexual harassment. And oh, yeah. uh-huh. talking about taking her home and... Nasty. Like I was like, what? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, again, going back to how the wire is so committed to its realism, um, and yeah, some of that 
sort of uh, misogynist language that is very troubling and very upsetting to listen to. It's just the reality that is captured by The Wire. Right. And then, like, on the other side, like, my favorite villain, I guess you could say, if there is even villains in The Wire, but I guess, yes, you can say that. Snoop. I love Snoop. (laughs) Snoop was very... uh, (laughs) no nonsense and and she kind of held it down and it's it's kind of like i'm trying to think did you even see as far as like on that end of like the criminal side like did you see any other female no yeah i i wanted to ask you about that angel so uh, your thoughts on uh women in law enforcement but then also your thoughts on women in other aspects of the game um and so you just brought up snoop yeah Snoop, I, I, I love Snoop, one, because, you know, as, as much as it's like, okay, no, I should not be laughing at the fact that, you know, she does what she does, but it's, it's, mm, it's somewhat comical, like in, in season four, the beginning, when she's in the store, <laughs> and she's getting the nail gun for her and um Chris to, you know, do their thing or whatever, and like she's just bantering back and forth with the the, the, the guy, and the and the poor guy, he doesn't know that she's a criminal. And it's just like one side of me is like, oh wow, like this is funny, like ha ha, what you don't know. But then it's like, wow, this is sad. And I just I just wish that we would have got a, a more like information on Snoop, like kind of more kind of like a backstory on her, because I would have loved to kind of see her character and understand her character's uh, background a little bit more. Um, But yeah, no, like she definitely was uh, one to uh, not be played. Yeah. I think as far as like female characters with a lot of agency and in a lot of control of their circumstances and, uh, the actions that they take, Snoop is probably really at the top of that list. Uh, Bailey, what do you think? I think what's interesting about Snoop is, and to some extent, actually a lot of the women that play that other side of the game um, that are involved in the illegal activity, her uh, ability to do what she needs to do just because she's female is not questioned in the same way that the female law enforcement may experience. You know, Marlo never asks if Snoop can do something because she's a woman. There's, it's, that's never questioned, right? And, and I think um, there's like some of the madams that we see as part of the Greek organization and stuff too. It's similar. Those, those women, are nev- their abilities are never questioned, although they're not obviously featured profoundly in the story well, but Bailey um, sorry to interrupt you Bailey but also same with Omar's crew Tasha is and there's another oh, girl, yeah. not questioned they're just their competencies are are taken at face value right yeah so I think that's pretty interesting and it, it's interesting I mean the only conflict we see in Omar's crew is that his boyfriend is jealous and right. uh and is worried that Omar might be interested in them Right. But that's like the that's like the best thing about Omar that like, you know, in the beginning, going back to when I first because, again, I started watching it in the kind of like in the middle and not really like I saw Omar, but not really understand like, okay why Omar is the way he is. And then going back and watching previous seasons, going back to his crew with the two females at first, it was like, oh, wow, like I kind of can see why he added females because it's like it's unsuspecting like that one scene where he pretends to be this elderly man in a wheelchair, a sickly man in a wheelchair. Like, you know, she pretended to be a nurse's aide. And it's like, you would never know, like, oh, like, can you let me in the house? Like, I'm sorry, but you can't get up the steps, like type of thing. Um, So, you know, I was like, oh, okay. And then it's like, oh, okay. They're trying to, you know, to like, oh, we got your psych. <laughs> We're going to come and kill you or whatever. So it kind of made him less, um, I guess, um, suspecting and you know easier to get his targets because they just let him in it was like oh it was a lady that had a guy in a wheelchair i i just let him in i didn't know until he pulled out his you know shotgun it's like oh it's omar you know <laughs> it wasn't the omar's coming everybody running high 
type of thing. It was just like kind of made it not softer, but just less, I guess, made them normal for the, you know. Yeah, I think maybe then like on the street side of the game, there's a lot more or a lot, maybe a lot less sort of overt misogyny and more um, gender bending and uh, a wide spectrum of of gender identities and uh, sexual identities that is unquestioned in the way that it is on this, you know, in scare quotes, legitimate side of the game. Right, right. Right, right, definitely. And it's like Snoop, like if I mean, if you saw Snoop on the street, you wouldn't it's like, oh okay, what can she do? Oh no, she's a killer, she's cutthroat, she's you know, whatever, but you know, that's how Marlo, you know, wants his people, but you know. So yeah, I love Snoop. <laughs> so do we for sure. Um I guess, so we'll sort of start to wrap up here. This has been so um, fascinating to talk about the women. As you brought up, Angel, like I think this side of the wire maybe goes a little bit under-discussed or unnoticed because we have so many really prominent male characters that sort of lead the plot outwardly, but there are a lot of women sort of behind the scenes. Um if you were to pick a favorite character, this is just something we like to ask everyone. It doesn't have to be a female, but uh, favorite character, and we want to hear what your favorite season is as well. Okay. If I had to pick a favorite character, oh, that's so hard. Whew. Um, I'm going to have to go with Bodie. <laughs> um, he, I, I, I as as much as I, I have a I I I don't like that he killed Wallace. Uh, but you know it, there were moments, there were tender moments where it was like, okay, he he has feelings. He's he's a sweet person. So yeah, Bodie's like my my favorite, and my favorite season. Uh, wouldn't have to be a combination of season two and season four. Ah, season two. So happy to hear that. We, Bailey and I love season two. Uh, it doesn't get enough love, I don't think. And Bailey, you love Bodhi also. I do. I really love Bodhi. Uh, Omar is my, I think, ultimate favorite, but Bodhi is a very close second. I do find it hard to pick. Right. I mean, season two, because the Sabakas, like I said on Twitter, um, what, what was it, Ziggy Tabaka? Like I said, that the mascot for season two should be the duck because that was like the duck should have got more screen time if you ask me. But um, uh, going back to season two in the Sabaka family with uh, Ziggy, you know, I, I my heart, you know, he was he was crazy, but you know, my heart went out to him because he he really didn't he wanted love and he wanted affection and he just again didn't know how to get it because he was a product of his environment but I mean I tell you when um the head Sabaka died uh when they put him in the the Greeks put him in the in the river I had to like and and I've seen some stuff now I could sit and watch forensic files and all this stuff and watch documentaries on forensics but I had to like pause it and like come back to it like at another time because it was it was a lot for me I was like um yeah this is <laughs> this is a little rough this is my heart broke my heart broke because I wasn't I didn't want him to die me too I was devastated really knows I was devastated about Frank Sabaka yeah I was like and then I had to go back and rewind it because I'm the type of person I'm like wow it wasn't suicide it was definitely homicide so I definitely look at stuff like that like that like um especially um you know um with um D'Angelo thank you I'm losing my train of thought D'Angelo Barksdale you know um that is a reality in in you know prisons that you know a lot of people some people will you know it's deemed suicide but it's actually a homicide you know type things so i was like come on like how are you not making this distinction like he didn't kill himself like he was killed by somebody else so those are like the conflicts that i 
you know, I came across. I mean, I think that probably speaks to the way anyone in the prison system, their case or their um, outcome is probably very much disregarded by by law enforcement. Once you're in the system, maybe uh, they just don't care as much, right? Right, right. They don't. And, um, you know, I think that when Brianna kind of was like, you know, saying Avon, like, you know, I feel like you know who did it. Like, I honestly think that she honestly knows who killed him, but like she just, I don't know, didn't want to deal with it. But it's like, you know who did it. Like, I wish somebody would tell you, like, <laughs> you know, Stringer Bell had a hand in his murder. Like, you know, it's not... <laughs> It's obvious, you know, and, you know, Avon's not all this great guy. He's your brother, but, you know, Cain did kill Abel, so, you know, <laughs> it's just, uh... That's a, that's a good analogy about Cain and Abel. Um, Bailey and I have uh, been talking about doing a, a sort of biblical allusions in The Wire, and uh, you make a really great point, Angel. Bailey, we'll have to come back to that sometime soon. Right? I mean, it's almost like, um, who was it that, um, I was thinking of Judas, um, who was it that died, that kind of, it was almost like a Judas priest type Well, of probably, like, Avon and Stringer, uh, are Judas yes. to each other in some degree. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, like a, uh, um, Julius Caesar and Brutus, like, you know, you two Brutus, like, you want to stab me in my back, it's almost kind of like the movie, um, 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 New Jack City and my, my brother's keeper like you know he just got caught up but like I said on Twitter I said that you know uh, Stringer was trying to go legit and he just kind of he was trying to be more than a product of his own environment and he kind of just he was a little bit more I think exposed than Avon was and Avon was like to the streets and he just wanted to keep his street credit and his autonomy and he, I guess he was afraid to see more than you know Baltimore and he just I don't know he was afraid of I guess what was what could be beyond you know what he knows so definitely I think it was like a Julius Caesar uh type of situation in that in that relationship well I think uh people being products of their environments is sort of a great way to sum up this conversation and also just the show as a whole um that's, uh, I think it really captures that really well. Uh, Bailey, any final thoughts on this discussion? No, I just want to say thank you, Angel, so much for joining us. I really enjoyed all of your thoughts. And it's been so great to talk about uh, the women in the wire with another brilliant woman. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to yes angel we enjoyed this so much we hope uh you'll be back soon um would love to talk about more aspects of the show with you uh this was wonderful any of our listeners can follow angel on twitter at successful angel we'll put that in our show notes and uh you can find her there we'll also make sure angel that we tag you and we share the link to this episode but thank you so much for being here um and we will see everyone next time, way down in the hole. Way down in the hole. All right. Thank you guys so much.